Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Well, good morning, everyone. Really glad that uh, you're joining us this morning, and uh, again, welcome to you, our online audience, wherever you are today. We're actually starting a brand new series called The Called uh, today for the next four weeks or five weeks, and so if you've got your Bible and hard or soft copy, uh, Luke chapter 14 is where we're going to begin to hang out today. Do you remember your junior high dance? I do. It was 1988. That's when I was in grade seven, and that's when I had my first dance. There are words that I would use to experience or describe a junior high dance. Awkward, scary, petrifying, and exciting. Now, you got to remember, if your dance was like mine, it was in a gym that probably is now in the size of the house you own today. The, uh, the lights were dark, the music was loud. Now, the year that I was at my first dance, Rob Bass uh, was the one that had the greatest impact on me. It takes two. Does anyone remember this? It takes two to make a thing go right. It takes two to take it out of sight, like deep, powerful, profound, life-changing words. That year was in excess, I Need You Tonight, George Michael, Faith, UB40, Red Wed Ryan, uh, Aerosmith, Angel. Anyone remember this at all? Now, some of you are going, oh my goodness, he's so young. Others are going, oh, he's balding, he's so old. I'm in the middle, I'll take it. <laughs> but that year was my first dance. And what I recall both at that experience and also being a youth pastor about junior high dances is this. It's the great divide. You walk into the room and all the boys are where? On one wall. They're small, they're smelly, except four of them that are six foot four already because they hit puberty at five. The other side are all the women. They're already five foot eight and overnight they grew breasts through the miracle called Kleenex. And so, (laughs) right? Right. We all know that, right? Okay, so they're on the walls, and they're all staring each other down. It's like two armies opposing. You as teachers just must laugh. Anyway, so there they are. They're looking, and suddenly one, and then two, and then three, and then four, and they sort of cross over, and they begin to dance. But then one guy goes over. He musters up all this courage, and he gets rejected, and he's thrown back, and then everyone stops dancing, and they mock him. Now, this is before, of course, uh, this. So I suppose they don't even dance anymore. They just text each other. I don't know what. But at that moment, you can see it. Now, it usually is four or five people that are popular that could dance. So everyone, when the loud and the fast music was on, they would sort of surround the five popular people who would dance, and we'd all pretend to dance, but we really didn't know how because they were dancing. And then it happened. The slow song began. What would happen at the slow song? Well, there are two types of junior high dancing that I observed. The first one is called the faraway dance. Do you remember this? Right? Oh, I'm a guy, actually. Right? All right. Yeah. And so you'd be dancing back and forth. As a pastor and a Christian, I like that type of dancing. It's the other dancing that really disturbed me. It's the way too close dancing. There's no room for Jesus. There's no room for a Bible, a slim line. An iPad Bible wouldn't fit. I mean, close. Now, what I've observed every time is this. They're slow dancing, and someone at a key point during the song puts their head where? On the shoulder. And so they're dancing really close, and usually the guy's like, that's right. That's, uh-huh, on the shoulder. What they don't know is this, the girl 
hasn't got her eyes closed. She's looking at another guy that she wants to dance with on the wall. Were you that girl? You've caused counseling issues for many of us. I just want to say that. But at that moment, they're looking beyond the person to see if something is better. I was hanging out with a friend of mine who's a counselor who said these words. Got me thinking about all this. So, you know, the truth is when it comes to relationships today, even marriages, the new generation acts like a grade eight dance. You're all snuggled up and dancing with your partner, but actually you're looking over their shoulder to see if there's something better coming down the pike. And not only is that true in relationships between friends or now in marriage, the scary thing is now it's even oozing into the church and our relationship with God. The truth is the mortality rate of Christians these days is growing. We're dancing with the divine. We have a relationship with God and we're with him. But as our head is on his shoulder, we're looking beyond wondering if maybe there's something just better. And that's where we come today and we begin this new series called The Called. Because unless we address this issue, nothing else gets dealt with. Do you know our mission statement in this church? Not our vision vision statement, but our mission statement. It's this. It's to glorify God by enabling people of all ages to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Now just stop and and think about that for a moment. Fully devoted follower. (coughs) Fully devoted disciple. Fully devoted Christian. Those that have given up everything day to day for Jesus as Savior and Lord. Now, there's a lot of personal work and responsibility that goes into this journey. After all, this really is a relationship, and all relationships need to be worked over over time. Yet, as Dave Adams said last week with Joanna LaFleur, we've not done a good job here at C4 in helping the corporate whole on this journey. It's been like choose your own adventure when you come to Crothers, or good luck, and we hope you just make it. As mentioned, we're working on a people path now, not only to help everyone new at C4 know what we're about or where to go or how to connect or even what our expectations are. There's more. This isn't just about connections. It's laying out how we become a fully devoted follower of Jesus. And that's important to all of us here today. Whether you're a person that's seeking, that is you're checking out Jesus in church for the first time or you've just become a Christian or the many of us that have followed Jesus for years or decades, all of us need to have a clear picture of what it means over time to become more fully devoted. So this mini-series is named The Called. That is who we already are, what we're being called to be, and what does God expect and want of me and all of us. <clears throat> this is a series of self-reflection and hopefully it's going to be a series of action. Now, before I get going, I need to address one group specifically today. It's the many of us that have grown up in church or have been followers of Jesus for a very long time. Many of us at this moment tend to tune out this type of series and say, I've heard this all before, I know all of this, and if you're online on iTunes, you're about to say, stop. But after 12 years of pastoral ministry in this church, I really do believe that many of us need to stop, have a soft heart, listen, and ask a question. What do I really know? And more importantly, what have I missed? In personal conversations, in my interactions with many, there are patterns forming among the supposed mature among us that tell me that key foundational steps have been missed, ignored, or even run from. For others, there used to be life or godly practice, but you've regressed, not progressed in your faith. 
We'll know more. From this series forward, we're going to make very clear about the next steps for all of us, no matter where we are in the journey. The goal for this four-week series is to look at the biblical mandate of discipleship, and then we're going to produce this people's path so we can evaluate where we are. And the goal for all of us is to walk together in one direction, to see where we have accomplished much in our relationship with God and others, and see where we really are still lacking, to really see clearly in the areas we think we're doing well and find out if we actually are doing well. All of this is done for one reason, to shepherd and care for you better, to build up this church and equip each person to become a more fully devoted follower. This series and this coming people path is just like you can consider it like making a cake. You need to know what ingredients you need. Or you could view this like the foundation of a building or stopping with a friendship or a marriage just to see where you're at. What got missed? What needs to be strengthened? What still needs to be done? And by the way, just as we begin this, the truth is this journey never ends. It's not like just a line from A to B and then you're done. It's like an ever-expanding circle that you cross over the same areas again and again, but you do it in different ages and stages of your walk. Now, there are three areas that must be looked at and come back to again and again. They make up the heart of discipleship. Over all of our spiritual lives, we will have to come back to these three areas multiple times if we are really going to make it and be faithful in the good, great, bad, terrible, and normal times. Here's what they are. Relationship, understanding, and freedom. Relationship, understanding, and freedom. Can you say that? Relationship. That was like a junior high class. Say it again. Relationship. Understanding. Freedom. This is the heartbeat of discipleship. To put it in another way, it's allegiance, it's truth, it's power. As a friend of mine wrote, and there should be an idea here, each of these encounters leads to a specific, very important dimension of the Christian experience. Allegiance leads to relationship. Truth leads to understanding. Spiritual power leads to freedom. It's like a three-legged stool. If you miss one leg, you become imbalanced or you fall over. Fully devoted followers of Jesus and fully devoted churches can never afford, hear this today, to be lopsided, but most of us are because we tend to focus on only one or two out of the three. Here's the truth if we're just talking as friends and family. Really good evangelical conservative churches are amazing when it comes to allegiance and relationship. We call people to Jesus, and we're serious, capital T, truth people. But the problem is we never talk about spiritual power. And so after years and years of service and doing church, we go, is this it? I read my Bible, I see God, and I'm wondering why I don't experience any of that. Then you go to charismatic churches, and they're good on allegiance too, and they're all about spiritual power, healings, and deliverances, but they never get down most of the time to truth, and so they don't have grounding, and they go off the deep end. And then there's other churches that never talk about relationship or allegiance, so in the end, they never call people to Jesus, so they never meet Jesus, so their understanding and their experiences don't even come from scripture. Over the last five and a half years, to the uncomfortability of some of you, the reason why myself and the staff have worked hard to change the culture of this church is because we were not balanced. And we are working hard to reintroduce all of this because this is what discipleship is about. This is the heartbeat of God himself for his church. 
It's very important that we catch this. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to start with relationship. We're going to start with the idea of allegiance, no matter who you are. The Bible's primary concern is about our relationship with him, a personal, all-imposing, all-consuming relationship with God. The closer we grow and know the Lord, the more our relationships with others and even ourselves get impacted, not just for the better, but for eternity. Relationship with God starts with a commitment or an allegiance with him. As with all relationships, it involves, and hear this everyone, it involves doing something, not just thinking or understanding or talking about something. Being, hear this, right is not enough. We have to act. Relationship involves action. It's interesting when I, when I think about this. It was 11 years ago that I stood basically right here and got married to my wife in August. Now, it's interesting. When I uh, got married to my wife, I said something before God and some of you, and she said something before God and some of you, and we said it to each other. You'll know it because almost all of you watched a wedding this weekend, didn't you? And they did it too, just with 16th century English. But it's the same thing. It was this. Are you ready for this? You, you know this. In sickness or in death, forsaking all what? Wow, that was weak. <laughs> Do you believe that? Forsaking all others. Now just let it sit. Allegiance equals forsaking all others. Relationship at its core means forsaking all others. I do not have a right to have sex with anyone except my wife. I do not have the right to date anyone else except my wife. I do not have the right to go online and have an emotional affair with someone over... Why? Relationship, its bedrock is connected to allegiance. Forsaking all others... My life, whether I love it or not, and I do, side note, is this. It is God-centric, and it is wife-centric first and foremost. And that's exactly how Jesus talks about the Christian walk. If you hear anyone preach the Christian walk in any other way, you may not be hearing the true Christian walk. One of the most quoted verses by Jesus, when you see it through the lens of allegiance and relationship, there's now teeth to it. Matthew twenty two thirty seven, Jesus replied, Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is summarized like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Notice here it's not just about knowing about God. It is heart. It is soul. It is mind. It is allegiance. It is all or nothing. It's all we are. As a friend of mine wrote, Christians who come from a knowledge-oriented stance tend to make statements against emphasizing experience as if it was something to be afraid of or not trusted and therefore, as good Christians, avoided. But notice, here and later in the Gospels, what Jesus did. He came to people and said, walk with me, see what I do, hear what I teach, and then you go do it also. Relationship is not just saying yes it is becoming like the one who we've decided to say yes to. I mean, think about the Gospels. Jesus said in Mark 3, 14, he appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be with him and they might be sent out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. 
They followed, they walked, they were changed, and then they ended up doing what he did. But it all begins in one place. A decision to say yes to God through Jesus Christ alone. The initial step is saying yes to the relationship, and the heart of this yes is switching, everyone ready? Allegiances from us, or another God, or another world religion, or another world system, or from sin, or Satan, or ourself, to Jesus Christ alone. That is the starting point of becoming a fully devoted follower. You have to become a follower. Now, some of us here today and online watching or listening, you haven't said yes yet, and you're welcome. Many others of you have said yes, and you know the exact time when you said yes. Others of us cannot even point to the specific time, but over time, the relationship just came to be, and we know that we know that we know in our hearts that now we really are followers of Jesus. But no matter who you are today, whether you have not said yes, or you've just said yes, or you don't remember, but you know you've met him, let's just let Jesus speak to us his words about following. Let's just let the living Jesus, through his living word, really clarify in simple ways where discipleship, where relationship begins. And that's where we're going to turn in Luke 14. So you can turn there. Luke 14, 25. <coughs> and, it, and it reads like this. It's a familiar passage if you've done the church thing for a while. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to him, to them, he, he said these words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. Wow. I mean, that is really strong. That, that's hate. That's an all or nothing idea. And by the way, do you notice how Jesus does this? He lists everyone that's important to us so we can't even escape the conversation. But let's get the context so we know what he means. One scholar, uh, I think, got it right when he said this. Jesus gets right to the point. The background for this remark and its rhetorical force are really crucial to understand it correctly. The meaning hate carries a comparative force here. The idea is not that we really hate our family or our lives, but that in comparison to Jesus, if we are forced to choose, the winner of the choice always has to be Jesus. He is to be loved more than anyone else. More, however, in the first century context, to decide to follow Jesus for some actually did mean deciding against family. Those who love family more would never consider Jesus. Those who love their own life more would never consider Jesus because many ended up dying because they did believe in Jesus. Thus, Jesus' remarks come in the context of what conversion may require. People, he's saying, you really need to understand the cost. This isn't just a religion or a moral idea. This is an all-consuming relationship. That's why Jesus continues and says these next really difficult words. Verse 27, and anyone who does not carry their own cross cannot, and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus continues with the theme of redirected loyalties. Uh, what does this mean? Well, this is saying that you have to hate yourself, basically, in the above sense. It's saying that what makes up your identity your family, your inner circle of friends, your DNA, your experience, your background, your education, your race, no matter what, it's all second now to Jesus. And Jesus brilliantly uses the idea of a cross to drive home the point. People of this time had seen crucifix, crucifixions multiple times. 
And Jesus uses this gory example for one reason. He's basically saying, if you're about to die to yourself, you're not going to spend the rest of your life trying to secure your identity in money or power or sexual experience or politics or, or possessions or, or living life the same. If you're about to die, you change your life radically. And by the way, Jesus says, you're going to have to give up your life to find life. He continues by giving two examples. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will they not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if he or she lays the foundation and they're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule them, saying, that person began building and they weren't, being able, to fin- they weren't able to finish. We all know projects that we've seen fail due to lack of funds or bad project management. Now, Jesus is saying, do you really want to be a follower of me? To really have me a savior, leader, and Lord? It's expensive, and you need to know the cost, because it's your life. He says in verse 31, Or suppose a king who's about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to oppose the coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send out a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. Now, I never caught what I'm about to share with you. As one wrote, the first example Jesus used is where we are all called today, right now, to sit down and reckon whether we can even afford to follow Jesus. But the second example Jesus uses is saying, well, you better sit down and reckon whether you can afford to actually refuse my invitation The first one can be avoided, but the second example is coming whether you want the conversation or not. These stories put all of us in a corner, and God boxes us in for our own good. Jesus says in verse 33, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything, you cannot be my disciple. This isn't adding another condition. This is a summary of what Jesus is saying. As, As another penned, a person needs to negotiate peace with God. You have two options. The first option is you hear what he has to say and you say no and you walk away and basically become an enemy. The other is that you sit down and you actually take a wise approach and you seek terms with peace, uh, peace with God, but on his terms, not on yours, because we all know that there's nothing we can really do to get saved. So Jesus comes and he says this to our community this morning, here and virtually, count the cost. He's really saying If you want to even get on the people path, understand what you're doing. But then the next question we all have to ask is this. (coughs) Well, once the message is given, once the opportunity is given to meet them, what happens? Well, the best passage to see this is a very familiar passage, but with a different twist. Just turn quickly to Acts 2. The very first Christian passage or message is given here. Peter is preaching to thousands of Jews and God-fearing Greeks in Jerusalem And at that moment, he's speaking to them about Jesus. He does this amazing message, and at the end of his message, he says these words about Jesus, which is all again about allegiance. Acts 2.36. Therefore, he writes, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Jesus is God. He's king. He's ruler. He's Christ. He's the anointed one. He is both Savior and Lord. It says in verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to their hearts and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? See, once they and we realize how far we are from God, 
that we can do nothing to match his holy law or his holiness. When we see our sin and our connection to God's, uh, God's son's own murder, which we all participated in, when we see our sickness, our separation, then we truly cry out, is there anything or anyone that can help? And the answer is yes. That's why Jesus came, to give relationship, to replace all others, to move our allegiance to him and him alone. You cannot have Jesus as Savior and not have him as Lord. Then Peter said in verse 38, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. He says, God's going to forgive you. He's going to give you the gift of the Spirit. He's going to give you the gift of relationship. They're all offered. They're all free. As another reflected, they murdered God's Son, and He offered them the Spirit. They crucified the second person of the Trinity. He offered them the third. They had thrown God's Son out of the vineyard in hope of inheriting the vineyard, and now He's inviting them to receive God's Spirit, not only into their vineyard, but actually into their hearts. Now, notice what Peter does here. It's important. He starts with the word repentance. Repentance is a willingness to have your life put right with God. It's an attitude of turning back to God, which involves remorse for our past. It's turning from a life of sin and selfishness under the realization of judgment and then encountering unexpected mercy. Well, at the heart of repentance is something called faith. Faith is a big churchy word, but it simply means to trust or believe. It has two parts. You need to know who you're having faith in, and then you need to surrender to that person. You, you need to know who Jesus is and what he's done, and then you need to say yes to him. And then we get this amazing thing called baptism. Now, the word baptism comes from the word immerse or dip. It implies a full immersion. And like I've shared with many of you before, when someone's baptized, it's an outward symbol of an inward work. When you go under the water and you come back, it's symbolically saying, I've died with Jesus and I'm being raised from the dead. It's the symbol of being clean. It's the symbol of new life. When, when all of us were in our mother's wombs, we were in a sack of water. And then what happened? The water broke and we came out. Yeah, that's the idea of being born again. That's where the whole idea comes from. And baptism is connected to that act. Or, or the greatest one I share all the time is the wedding ring. Baptism does not make a marriage Baptism is the declaration that you have already given allegiance to someone else. It is the outward symbol of the existing relationship. It says in Acts 2.41, those who accepted his message were baptized. 3,000 were added to their number that day. But notice this, everyone. They believed first. They had repented. They already had faith and relationship. Then they were baptized. There's no infants here. There's no tri-generational faith here. People personally heard the message and said yes. You're never saved by the act of baptism. Baptism affirms the faith you've already been given and you've accepted. Now at this moment, most pastors would stop right here and would stop preaching. But is that it? That's what I need to ask. Is it me and the Trinity, Jesus is my homeboy, and we all just sort of, no. There's so much more going on because the very next verses move us to see that if you're going to commit to Jesus... You have to commit to his community, the church. Paul later would call all of us the body of Christ. You cannot have Jesus without his body. As Michael Haken wrote from, from Toronto, the New Testament knows nothing of solitary Christianity. 
For all these people that say, well, it's just me and my television, I'm going to love Jesus that way. Unless they're shut-ins, there is no biblical mandate or excuse. 3,000 people are baptized, and the very next thing you read is the verse that most of us know. Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. Everyone's filled with awe, many wonders, miraculous signs done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and the good they gave to anyone who had need. Every day they met together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They praised God. They enjoyed the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, it's interesting that the very first word used here is devoted. They had allegiance. They had relationship. They continued in faithful adherence to the new community, not just to the head of the community. And it took priority. And like I've, I've wrestled with many of you before, you can't treat church like a gas station. You can't come one out of six and think that's just okay. That is not what we see here. It's not a social club. This is something so much more. This is the gathering of the people of God to do His work. And it took significant priority. Now, it's interesting. Right after relationship, the very next thing that's mentioned is understanding or truth, the apostles' teaching. And we'll get there next week. But look at all the descriptions. Fellowship, that unique sharing that Christians have. The center of it, beyond apostles' teaching, is breaking of bread. Communion, the Lord's Supper, the remembrance of Jesus' death and resurrection, the reminder of our forgiveness, his return, the image of the last great meal we're going to have with him, the place of guaranteed meaning, one of the places. It's the great symbol of the defeat of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and it's done together. It says in verse 46 that they met together in the temple courts. They met together in their homes. You've got to remember that on the Temple Mount that you can still see today, at this moment, three to 5,000 Christians were meeting as one church, worshiping Jesus, and then they'd break off into homes. Big and small church are the reality of the church since the very inception of the church. But you notice that there's faithful adherence to the large gatherings and the small gatherings. If we're going to be serious about discipleship, if we're going to be serious about relationship, if we're going to be serious about allegiance, no matter who we are or how long you've come to C4 or another church, this has to get sorted out quickly. So the question for us today is the so what? Well, let me say a few things. Number one, it's this. Our journey starts and will always be about relationship first and foremost with God through Jesus and then with each other. As a friend of mine wrote, our allegiance to Jesus and the ensuing relationship over time is to replace any other allegiance or relationship that has primacy in our own lives. No one becomes a Christian, hear this, simply through knowledge or power. James says that even demons have understanding about God in orthodox detail, and they tremble in fear. And though they have all the knowledge they need, they have none of the relationship required for salvation. Do you know why? Allegiance. So as we look at the teaching and experience of Jesus and the teaching and experience of the very first church, our great, great spiritual grandparents, and then we think about us and we think about the people path, three simple ideas emerge today where we're going to begin. This is a progressive series, so understand, this is only part one of four. Here it is. First of all, there has to be a decision about meeting Jesus or not meeting him. 
That's how you get on the path in the first place. Everyone needs to start right here. As I preach in a different message, God is inviting you to know him. But what do you want to do with that? Do you want to be owned by yourself or something else or God? What do you want to be master, sin or you? Uh, sin, you or Jesus? Uh, God or not you? Or, or you? What results do you want, death or life? One you pay for now and forever. The other brings life now and eternal life. It says in Scripture you need to repent, have faith. You must say to Jesus, I don't just believe that you existed in history. I don't just believe that you died for my sins in some conceptual academic way. I personally declare, like going to get married, I'm declaring to you personally, Jesus, that I believe you rose from the dead, you died for my sin, and I am personally embracing you as my Savior, my leader, and my Lord. That's the difference between that and religion. Paul wrote these words, Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, if you're that person and you've never even taken the step towards Jesus, this is simply what you need to do. And it is simple and yet very life-consuming. You need to declare in your heart or out loud simply, Jesus, I do believe who you were. I do embrace the cross. I do embrace that you died and rose again. I want you to be my Savior and Lord. I put the wedding ring on. I want to have real relationship with you. I turn from a life of sin and say yes to you. Any form of prayer like that, done with a genuine heart, that's when God moves into your life. Now, lots of us here have done that, and some of us haven't. And God comes to some of you in a very, very invitational way this morning, maybe even surprisingly to you, and says, it's time for us to have the conversation. Are you willing to estimate the cost and follow me? Now, if that's you, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray right now, and then I'm going to address all that have said yes. So let's pray again and do this. So this is you, just pray this. Jesus, I accept you. I, I accept you. I know the cost. I know what you've done. You lived my life. You died a death I deserve. You've risen from the dead. And now I declare that I want you to not only save me from my sins, I want your lordship. I, I want you to come and I give all my allegiance to you. I do this because I need salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we'll follow up in a minute if that was you or you online. Now, here's the next thing as we just simply talk about this. The next question is, if you are a Christian, what is stopping you from being baptized if you haven't been? See, baptism is not an option for Christians. It's a command of Jesus. And if you've already given your life over, you have to be baptized. Not for salvation, but because of obedience. The outward declaration is necessary, and no matter if you're a brand new Christian or you've been a Christian for years and years, you are called to do this. Do not let, hear this, fear, laziness, embarrassment, or trying to be a better Christian before you get baptized stop you from getting baptized. Because the scriptures are clear that right when someone became a Christian, the very next thing they did is they got baptized. No one stopped and said, well, I'm going to learn all my systematic theology and learn my spiritual disciplines, give to the poor, and then maybe I'll be ready. Where did that come from? Not from, not from Jesus. Scripture is clear. 
We're called to be. Now, some of you will want to share your stories and some of you won't. That's fine. The point is that you are publicly obeying. What were the last words of Jesus before he left? Matthew 18. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, did you just catch it? Allegiance. Disciples and baptism. Understanding. Right there. Teach them to obey. Spiritual power. I am with you always to the very end of the age. How is Jesus with us? Through his spirit who empowers us to do his work. Right in Jesus' last words, you see that stool that is needed to actually do discipleship right. Some of you, God comes to you and says, it is time to count the cost and follow me. To others, many of you, he says, it is time to put aside the excuses and publicly put on the wedding ring and say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed. But here's the last thing, because we're only doing three of the steps today out of the many on the people path. You see implied here a very strong call to local church commitment. As I started with the idea of a grade eight dance, the same is true, especially for us as Christians when it comes to churches. We are now in a culture that treats church like a good. Let's see what's better is the growing normative attitude among most of us. Now, is there a time to leave a church? Of course there is a time to leave a church, both in, in good times and in bad times. But it should be the exception, not the norm. What we see here is a deep, devoted, long-term, faithful commitment to a community. So here's the question we all need to ask, honestly. Is membership a biblical idea? Sort of. Membership, there's no verse, thou shalt become a member. It's not there. And membership, by the way, let me tell you what it's not. Membership is not to create a watchdog mentality. You don't become a member either as a small group or a large group to bring your agenda to what the church is supposed to do according to you. If, if that's what membership is, please don't respond today. Seriously. Membership is a strong way for us to say this. Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, this is my church. Is it the only church? No. Is it the best church? No. But this is my church. Yes, here's another thing. I believe in the unique vision of this local church. When you become connected to something, you're not only connecting yourself to the large movement of God in the world, you're asking the question, what is this local church committing itself to uniquely? If you do not believe in the vision of this church, you should not be a member of this church. Being a member, also saying, I willingly submit myself to the leadership to speak into my life. Yes, you're saying, I'm willing to give my time, my talent, my money to this church. Yes, I'm committed to this local expression of the church without arrogance. We don't think we're better than other churches. We don't think we're more holy or more called. We're just saying, we believe at this time we're called here. Now, some of you generationally don't like the idea of membership. The only thing that you're a member of is Costco, and that's about it. Because it's, am I wrong? Membership is fine. So fine. If you want to call it partnership, fine. If, if that's too strong, just think of us like Facebook. You're just liking us. What, whatever works for you. But, right? I mean, whatever works for you generationally. But if we're going to keep going as a church, and we're going to start building a people path that we're all walking in one direction, and we're becoming fully devoted... 
It's got to be, first of all, when people say, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus. It's going to be when baptism is a normative experience for every person who has become a Christian or is becoming a Christian. And it's when the church is going to rally and say, in the good times and the bad times, when the church is ugly or happy or sad, I'm going to be committed to this for a period of time. That's the first simple three steps we all need to start thinking about. Now, in the next week, we're going to talk about understanding, and then the two weeks after that, we're going to talk about spiritual power. And it's going to be quite an experience for all of us, because no matter if you've been a Christian for a day, or you're not a Christian yet, or you've been a Christian for 20 or 30 years, I'm guaranteeing you that a lot of what we're going to talk about right out of the scriptures, right out of Jesus's life, many of us have never reflected on, or we've reflected on it, but we've never done it. And this is an exciting and potentially life-changing series if we, for the next month and then years, commit on a regular way to start doing this. Because the more you grow in your relationship with God, the more you grow in your understanding about the God we worship, and the more that you begin to participate with the Holy Spirit in the power that he gives each of us, the more this church will look like Jesus. Because that's how he set this out in the first place. So Sarah comes back to lead, and we're going to sing to Jesus. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to give you a chance to respond. So why don't we pray together, mull it over in your head, and and let's talk. Jesus, thank you, first of all, that, again, I mean, we have done this for a while. We say these words so easily, but honestly, Lord, thank you. Thank you you that you showed up and that you loved us. I mean, beyond local church, I mean, thank you that you loved us. And so a lot of us just want to say thanks. Lord, thanks that you call us to be yourself. Thank you that allegiance to you was way better than something else because when we, uh, when we give relationship to other things, it always goes wrong. Thanks, God, that you are clear about what you want. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the act of baptism. Thank you, Lord, for not just our church. Thank you for all sorts of local churches around the world that look so differently but are all calling people to the same thing, to love you and love others. And so, Lord, we pray right now as we begin to unveil this, that our community, as diverse as it is, will begin to rally to you, not to this church, to you, and become more like you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.carotherscreek.ca.